Good morning, everybody. If you guys would find your seats, we're going to kind of hop in quickly this morning so that we can make time for some baptisms afterwards. Awesome. Hey, let me pray for us, and uh, let's jump in this morning. Jesus, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to gather as your church, Lord, your body. I pray this morning, God, that um, you'd have your way in this place, Lord. We ask that your spirit uh, would just be present through this, through this gathering, God, that you'd be working through your word. And I pray for those in this room that are potentially going to engage you in a whole new way this morning. I ask Jesus that they would see you clearly, God, that you even now would begin the work in their hearts as you begin to speak to them. And uh, Jesus, we just thank you for moments like this where we get to share in these opportunities um, with regards to baptism and watching people make this proclamation for you. And I just pray, Jesus, that again, your hand be upon this time, that you'd seal it, use it for your purposes, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right, so we're going we're to jump right in this morning because we, we don't have a ton of time and we need to get to a couple of baptisms this morning. Um, but last week, you guys know we ended this series that we've been in in the book of Matthew for the last two and a half years, and we wrapped it up last week. And one of the thoughts we had for the upcoming couple months was, let's come out of Matthew, let's, let's touch base this week and next week on a couple other stories that Matthew doesn't highlight at the end of the gospel accounts um, after Jesus' resurrection. Let's, let's touch base on a couple of those. So this week we'll be in John chapter 21. Uh, next week we'll be wrapping up uh, the book of Luke. And we want to highlight a couple stories that you don't get in the book of Matthew. After that, uh, in the book of Luke, you, you see this reference to Jesus' ascension. And so we want to go from there into the book of Acts and spend a handful of weeks kind of working our way through the first two chapters of the book of Acts and talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church and kind of set the stage for us of sorts. And then in the month of July, we'll spend a month just in some random psalms. And then in the month of August, we'll come back and we'll actually do a several week study on the Holy Spirit. So the, the goal is to kind of come out of um, get your appetite wet a little bit in the book of Acts for the coming of the Spirit, and then like, let's wait till later in the summer where we'll actually discuss the role of the Spirit and what the Spirit's purpose is in the church today and how he's equipping and coming alongside and helping his church today. Um, so that's kind of where we're going. So this morning I'm going to be in John 21, and unlike most of the time where I'll just like read through a massive piece of text, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to reference it. But I'm going to ask you guys to open up your Bibles, have them open, because we're going to just like take quick shots and reference this story as we work through it. So there's 25 verses in total in John chapter 21, and that's kind of where we're going to camp out at. But, but the goal is really to see God's heart for Peter in the midst of the story. And so uh, I want to see just a, some, some, a significant moment that Jesus shares with Peter uh, in this particular story. And so if you look at John chapter 20, before you come into 21 there, uh, the way it ends seems to be that it should be like the end of the book of John there at, at, at the end of chapter 20. It says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And it seems like the perfect ending to a book that is all about Jesus, like the perfect bookend. But 
the book of John is sort of like a Marvel movie, right? Uh, when you go to a Marvel movie, how many of you know there's more after the credits, right? So it's like the, the movie ends, and if you are a Marvel fan, you know you're going to sit there in the theater for another five, ten minutes and wait for the actual end to come to the movie. And it's sort of like that uh, w- with this book. Um, John is basically like, oh, and there's, there's one more thing, like one loose end that, that, that we need to tie. And it, it's actually this loose end that gets tied up with regards to the story that we re- read during our Good Friday service out of the book of Matthew, and we didn't get to spend a ton of time there outside of reading the passage. But all throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Peter has been this, this key player in the gospel alongside of Jesus, right? He's sort of this key player in carrying this plot line of this, the, the gospel. And so now, for, for two chapters in the book of John, Peter's been absent, like he's, he's been gone, and now he comes back into the story. And um, what is it that Peter was doing in these two chapters, like well, Peter just kind of disappears for a little. The last time we see Peter is actually in chapter 18 of John and chapter 27 in the book of Matthew. And what, what's Peter doing? Peter's actually swearing up and down that he didn't know Jesus. Like he's denying Jesus three times. And, and so just like Jesus has predicted, like somewhere in the distance, right, this rooster crows And then you get to chapter 21, and it seems like John just couldn't end the story without explaining what happened to Peter afterwards. Like, he denies Jesus, and we know this, but then what happens to Peter after this? Because if you've ever started strong for Jesus before in your lives, and then failed, many of us begin to wonder, like, can God ever use a person like me again? Is that the end of the story, or is there a redemptive piece to it? Is there actually a restoration that can happen in my life? And chapter 21, I think, is for you and I in that sense, a reminder of God isn't done with you. Restoration can be had, and, and again, this is Peter's story. And actually, what's interesting is, like, I read through this chapter, and I think it, parts of it are my story. Parts of it are like, I, I get wrecked reading through this passage of John because my heart just like swells with excitement and, and gratitude for the fact that Jesus is in the business of restoring us, his people. That, that you and I will fail, we will slip up, like it, it will happen. But Jesus is in the business of restoring us. And what we see in chapter 21 is how Jesus actually addresses failures, how Jesus actually addresses failure in our life. So I just kind of want to walk quickly through verses 1 through 14, because they kind of set the stage for some key conversations that Jesus and Peter are going to have. So first of all, in chapter 21, the first words we read here is, after this. It says, but after this. So it's essentially referring to the fact that at this point, where, where we sit in the narrative of the Bible, of the gospel, is that Jesus has been raised from the dead, but he's yet to ascend, right? Like I talked, next week we'll talk about the, the ascension. And so there's some time in between when Jesus rises from the dead and then when Jesus ascends to this place of glory. And so we're in between that period at this point in the book of John. And, and as Jesus was raised from the dead, he goes and he begins to appear to his disciples. Like he shows them that he's actually still alive. 
But we read back in, in chapter 20 that there's this disciple named Thomas that's, that, that wasn't in the room, and Thomas drops this ultimatum that, that, that's basically going to get him labeled forever as doubting Thomas, right? He says, unless I get to place my finger in the holes of your hands and in the holes of his side, like, I'll, I'll actually never believe. And so then a week later, what happens, Jesus literally walks through a wall, and, and he, 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 he walks through this wall, he looks at Thomas, and he goes, like, what do you think now? <laughs> you know, like, do you believe now, Thomas? And at that point, like, Thomas believes. And so when John says, after this, at the beginning of chapter 21, these are the things that have happened that have led up to this point, after these things. And so now we're about to see Jesus' third appearance to his disciples. So we've got Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, John, James and John, and two other disciples that it says are unnamed, which you feel a little bummed for those guys, right? It's their 15 minutes of glory, man, and it's like they're unnamed. Everybody else gets named but these two disciples. Um, and so John says, and there's two other guys. Like, I can't remember who they were, but there's two others that are there, right? And then Peter, who's often the leader, says, let's go fishing. Like, come on, guys, let's go fishing. The, the other guy says, the other guy says, sweet, like, let's join him. Let, let's go fishing with Peter. And they go off. They fish all night. They catch nothing. At, at daybreak the next day, this voice comes from the shore that they can't figure out who it is. Who's, they can't make out who the person is um, because it's, maybe it's too early in the day or, or whatever. Um, but they can't figure out who it is. And they hear from shore the words that, like, no fisherman ever wants to hear, Right? Hey, friends, have you caught anything? <laughs> yeah. You haven't caught anything, have you? Jesus is like children. Have you caught anything? And anybody in this room that, that ever goes fishing um, knows that fishing is like one gigantic test of your patience, right? It's why I didn't fish for most of my life because I'm the most impatient person. And in the last two years, I actually like kind of sitting there and not catching a fish every now and then. Um, but... Fishing just tests your patience. But if you're a fisherman, you know you'd never want to hear these words. Like, like, what's the worst thing that somebody could say to you as a fisherman? Oh, you haven't caught anything yet, have you? Like, it's just shaming, right? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, I can see your nets are empty. Like, you haven't caught anything. Thanks a lot. And I think what Jesus says next is even worse than this thing before. And so if there's any part of them that's frustrated at this point with this guy that's like, you haven't caught anything, have you? Look at what he says next. He says, hey, you should try casting your net on the other side of the boat. If you're ever tired or frustrated as a fisherman, <laughs> right, and all of a sudden your kid comes up to you and is like, dad, you're not catching anything, put the net in on the other side. What do you do as a dad? Shut up, you know, like, I'm, the, I'm fishing, like, I know what to do. He's like, this voice from the beach, put your net in on the other side of the boat. Cast your net on the other side. And so they do it. And one of the disciples who's described as the disciple that Jesus loved, he, he sort of puts it all together and he goes, like, that's Jesus. Like, it's Jesus. And Peter, who, who I love, right, he's just amazing, but without thinking, which is like true to Peter's form, he sort of wraps himself in his, in his garment, which who knows like what he was wearing to begin with, but he puts clothes on, and Peter jumps into the water, 
And he begins swimming to shore as fast as he can the minute he knows that it's Jesus. And so they get to the shore. Jesus is sitting by this charcoal fire. And in a few verses, like this book that has like tons of these like epic moments, right? Like so many of these grandiose scenes with so many different people ends with this really simple breakfast with friends on the beach. What a cool story. And so before we move into looking at verses 15 through 19, I just want to bring two things to your attention um, because I can't read these first 14 verses without thinking of a couple things. The first is that you can't read this without thinking that this sounds oddly familiar. Right? I, I had to go back in the story a little bit. You go back in uh, Luke chapter 5, and you've got James and John and Peter, and they actually, they, when they first meet Jesus, Jesus is teaching along the Sea of Galilee, potentially even the same spot. And he's teaching to these huge crowds, and he decides to get into a person's boat, which actually was Peter's boat. And it says that he puts off from shore a little bit, he sits down, and he begins to teach the masses from this boat. And at a certain point, he's teaching, and he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, hey, like, drop down your nets. And Peter says, like, Master, we've been fishing all day and all night. We haven't got anything. But if you say so, like, we'll, we'll go ahead and do it. And so Peter puts down his nets into the water. He pulls out such a massive amount of fish that he calls his fishing buddies, like James and John, over to come over and help pull out this net. And there's so many fish that it says that their boat was about to sink. And so at that, Peter looks at Jesus and he says, like, Master, like, I'm a sinner. Go away from me. And Jesus doesn't reject him at this point, right? Actually, what he, what he does is he looks at Peter and he says, follow me, Peter. And he says, and I'll make you fishers of men. And that's when Peter and James and John begin this initial walk in following Jesus. And so we've seen this before, like same place, like fairly similar situation. That's the first thing you notice. The second thing is a little bit more subtle, uh, but it kind of catches my attention. When this passage mentions that Jesus is sitting by this charcoal fire, there's only one other time in the gospel where this, these specific words are used, like this charcoal fire. And the one other time in the gospels where these words are used is in John's gospel in chapter 18, verse 18. The last time these words charcoal fire were mentioned were when Peter is standing around warming himself around a charcoal fire and he denies Jesus three times. And I don't think that the fact that there's this charcoal fire here again on the shore, Jesus is calling to Peter and the other disciples over to the beach, over to this charcoal fire. Like, I don't think it's all coincidence. And I sort of think these two things set the stage for what Jesus intentionally is wanting to do here in these next few verses as he addresses Peter's failure. And so if you look at verses 15 through 19, it says, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Many people have different ideas of what the these is in this passage. Like, who are the these? I mean, you can go read different commentaries and get different um, perspectives. But who is it that Jesus is referring to? I think that he's referring to the other men that are around the fire. Do, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these other men? And I think that Jesus is kind of going after something fairly specific here. Because if you remember, when Jesus had a conversation with his disciples and he was telling them, 
I'm going to be crucified, and all of you are going to be scattered. Peter responds really quickly, and he says, hey, Jesus, when that happens, if all these other dudes deny you, I won't. That's what Peter says. Like, I never will. And, and so I think the question that he's getting at here is, hey, Peter, do you really love me more than these? Do you really love me more than these other men? And Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, Peter, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says that Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? You see, to, to this point, to this point, Jesus has interacted with the disciples a couple times after his resurrection. And so while Jesus has interacted with his disciples, Peter's failure in particular, like his denial of Jesus, has yet to be addressed. Even though Jesus has shown up, he's interacted with his disciples, like it, Peter has not been addressed. Jesus hasn't even mentioned Peter's denial of him. And so when Jesus asks this question a third time, it all becomes abundantly clear to Peter, right, that, of what, what Jesus is actually after. And it sort of all comes to the forefront. And so it says that Peter grieves because his failure is sort of brought out into the spotlight, right? And now it's standing between him and Jesus. Like it's been recognized. And so there's this one thing that's true about Peter. Like one significant flaw of his is that Peter just kind of has overconfidence, right? <laughs> the guy's the first to just rush and just do whatever, chop off a person's ear, whatever it is. And so time and time again, Peter sort of overestimates his, his devotion to Jesus. And, and so he's constantly like writing checks with his mouth that he can't cash, right? That's just Peter. That's the way he operates. And so it's easy to take this passage and then you begin to like insert our own narratives into this. Like some, some of you have heard this passage preached hundreds of times. Like you've heard it taught from all different perspectives, spe specifically getting into what are the loves that Jesus is using there, and what are those, what are those communicating? But it, it's easy to go like, well, maybe one of the ways that Peter dealt with his sin was just to kind of downplay it. Like, so, so maybe one of the ways that we can deal with sin is that, that we deal with sin is that we just kind of minimize our sin. We, we downplay our sin. Like, maybe Peter didn't actually see his sin as a very big deal. Because in his mind, they, they were just these little sins that weren't necessarily a big deal. And so here, the, the, the surprising sort of nature uh, of the grief for him was maybe because he sincerely didn't see his failures as that big of a deal. And so we can do that too. I mean, this is one way I've heard it preached. We can minimize, we can downplay our sin. Is that what Peter's doing in this passage? And, and he's being pulled out into the light away from all of that. Or is it possible that, that Peter's the type of person that it is, isn't minimizing or downplaying his sin, but maybe it's just his way of justifying it? Like he's just trying to justify. There, there's some people in this room that we do the same thing, right? The, the way that we handle our sin is that we work through the, 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 this reasoning that like everybody fails, but I'm better than most people, right? Justify it. Like everybody's, I'm not as bad as the guy next to me. 
And so Peter could have just like pulled off this list of things that he's done for Jesus, right? All the things that he sacrificed for Jesus and go, yeah, so my failures really aren't as big as what I've sacrificed and so I'm good. And so he could justify it. Another way that you could read this, uh, as far as what's behind all this with Peter, is, is I wonder if Peter was like fully aware of his sin. Well, but, but then you look at Peter's life, and what defined Peter's life? Shame. He was aware of something. And I don't know about you guys, but I know for me specifically, the type of person that I am, like how I deal with my sin, is I'm the type of person that when I fail, I don't need you to point it out to me, right? Like I was the kid in high school when I, when I played baseball and played sports in high school, that when I made a mistake, I didn't need the coach pointing it out to me that I made a mistake. I was the kid who was like, I know what I did wrong. Like, I let the team down. <laughs> you know, I, I, I missed the play. I was fully aware of it. But then what I often do with my sin is, is I just try to avoid it. Or, or then I try to, like, shove it deep down. Like, I try to hide it. And so I'll just bury it under layers upon layers upon layers of shame. And then the way that it begins to express itself often is in like an overconfidence, like, right? Where I, I try to kind of convince everybody else, including myself, that I'm just good, that everything's just fine. And so you can read a bunch into this passage and try to pull out a narrative that isn't necessarily there. But the reality is like we just don't know what's going on with Peter, what he's feeling, what he's sensing, what's going on. I know that he's a broken man. I know that in this instance, there's some stuff being brought out to, into the light. But I don't know what Peter had done with his failure in the time between when he failed and now. And, and there's this moment where Jesus sort of brings it into the light. And I don't know what you do with your sin when you fail, when you fall. Like, how do you handle it? Like, there, there's a million different ways for us to not deal with our sin and failure, Right? A million different ways that we cannot deal with it. Minimizing it doesn't deal with it. Justifying it doesn't deal with it. Burying it under layers of shame does not actually deal with it. And, and there's millions of different ways that we cannot deal with our sin and, and our failures, but there's only one way for us to actually deal with it. And what this text really highlights that I think is so powerful is that the one way that we have to deal with our failure begins with this really simple and really important step that's highlighted in this passage. It's grief. It mentioned that Peter grieved. And I think dealing rightly with our sin, with our failure, begins with grief. And I think it's important. Like, this moment here is not Jesus being hard on Peter. Like, like, what the world will tell you is that you need to surround yourself with positive people, right? Who are going to tell you all the positive things. Fill your mind with all of the positive thoughts. And honestly, church, like, the sooner that you come to grips with the fact that you failed, the better, honestly. Because it gives Jesus a lot of room to work. And so this isn't Jesus being a jerk to Peter. This isn't just some version of tough love as Jesus pulls them out to this charcoal fire like, Peter, remember this? <laughs> you, remember, you remember what happened last time? Yeah, like, remember? You denied me three times? Like, take a look. Sit in that for a moment. You know, like, it's not Jesus' tough love that he's trying to have for Peter. But when Jesus, this is the part that wrecks me, when Jesus pulls the disciples into this moment, this is literally Jesus 
loving Peter, like his tender heart towards Peter. He's trying to bring something into the light that Peter will finally see. And if he sees it, maybe Peter will actually grieve it. And if he grieves over it, maybe Peter will begin to hate it, the sin. I once heard somebody say this and thought it was so good. They said, you will not hate what you don't grieve, and you will not grieve what you don't see. And so Jesus is pulling Peter back to the spot of failure of sorts, trying to pull at center stage because Jesus wants to deal with it. And so when you look at this moment, you don't see tough love. You don't see Jesus trying to just be a jerk like some negative Nancy friend, right? Remember what you did to me? But what you should see here is actually the, the work of a really good shepherd loving his sheep well. And I love it because when I look at this passage, what I see, like what's true of Jesus, is that Jesus isn't after the masses, right? He's after people. Jesus is after individuals. And in this one situation, like he's after Peter. He's after Peter's heart. And he's trying to address this failure in Peter's life. But one thing I've learned in life is that it's really hard for you to move forward in life when you don't address the failures of your past. Like there's something about looking back and saying like, I'm, I'm walking away from that. I've dealt with it. Like I've taken it to the cross. And we know Peter's charcoal fire moment of sorts, right? We, we know what his failure was. He denied Christ three times. But can I just ask you guys this morning, what are the charcoal fire moments in your life? What are those moments, those places of failure that, that even as I mention it now, like it just puts a pit into your stomach because you remember that moment and the thing that you've minimized or the thing that you've downplayed, the thing that you've tried to justify your whole life, the, the thing that you've just buried in a bunch of shame. Like what are the charcoal fires of your life? And so as a follow-up question to that then is what have you done with those fires? with those failures, with those places of failure in your life, like the things that now, as they get brought into the light, you're ashamed of, like do you have a tendency to minimize them, to justify them, to downplay them, to bury them under shame, to grit your teeth and just kind of move on? Like what do you do with these moments in your life? And what Jesus is trying to do with Peter is get him to see the failure, like, right, you denied me, Peter, to grieve it, and then there's this difference between like worldly grief that leads us to remorse, like I just feel bad, this worldly grief that leads us to regret, and then this godly grief for the sorrow that actually leads us to repentance. And I want to ask you, like, as you see your sin, where is it leading you to? Like, do you just feel bad, or is it leading you to repentance. Like, what's on display here is you see um, not just the work of this great shepherd, but you see the work of this really amazing surgeon doing heart surgery on Peter in these few verses. Like, he's opening Peter up, right? And this is like gospel surgery right before our eyes. Like, you can see it in Peter's life. It's painful. It's causing him grief. 
And this kind of like heart surgery is hard because you have to open up. You actually have to let Jesus into the darkest parts of your life and you have to let Jesus do the work that only Jesus can do. And have you ever let him do all of that with all the areas of failure in your life? Let Jesus step in and do what he came to do to restore you. So moving on past like Peter's grief, which I think is kind of step one. But I also, I want you to see his restoration. Because I think as in this entire chapter, like in all the things that I'm, I'm about to say, this is maybe the most simple and most important observation of this entire text. Don't miss it. In, in light of Peter's failure, what is it that Jesus asked of Peter? What did he ask him? What's the question? Three times, what does Jesus ask? Do you love me? That's what he says. Do you love me? And I find that so odd that this is the question that Jesus chooses to ask three times. Because when you read this, it seems like the the most logical question that Jesus could have asked Peter is like, hey Peter, do you promise that you'll never fail me again? That, That seems like the logical question. You promise you won't ever do that again, Peter? And maybe that would have been an easier question for Peter because Peter could have been like, yes, I won't ever do that again. But Jesus doesn't even ask him the question of, do you promise you'll never fail me again? Because he knows it's a promise that Peter cannot keep. He will fail him again. And you see the gospel right here because we, we saw Peter fall short of Jesus because of his flawed actions. Like he slipped up. He denied Jesus. He was kind of a chicken. And the interesting thing, the amazing thing about this is that Peter wasn't restored to Jesus because of better actions, was he? It wasn't because he cleaned up his act and now did all the right things that is restored to Jesus. And so this is a perfect picture for us of how the gospel works. We fall short of Jesus because of our flawed actions. Like we fall short, but we're restored to Jesus because of our professed love for Jesus. And this is the the reality of Jesus' words. Like when he said on the cross, he said, it is finished. This is the reality of those words on display. When Jesus cries out, it is finished on the cross, what he was declaring is that all the things that you've ever done wrong, the entire bill that you've racked up over the course of your life that you could not pay, and that you'll continue to rack up through the rest of your life. All of that has been forever and always paid in full by Jesus. Is that not amazing? And all that Jesus demands from us is not your perfection. He wants your heart because he knows if he actually has your heart, everything else comes along with that. Like if you love me, you'll obey me. If I have your heart, then all of that will continue to move. Like your actions will continue to move. But Jesus wasn't asking Peter for perfection. Not asking for perfection, Peter. He's asking, do you love me? Are any of you in this room this morning, do any of you have failures in your life? And can I ask you that question this morning as well? Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? 
And if the answer is yes, then regardless of how you feel about whether you're worthy or not of Jesus' love or whether you're clean right now or not, what is being told to us by the truths of Scripture is that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he goes on and, and it even gets better. Like I love how Jesus responds after he says, do you love me? He doesn't just look back at Peter and say, you're forgiven, which would also seem like a logical next step for Jesus, right? But what's amazing about the gospel is the gospel doesn't stop at forgiveness because the gospel actually moves on to usefulness, right? Like, you have a purpose. Like, many of you will say, like, is it possible that God would never use me because I've failed so much? I've fallen so short that there couldn't be a purpose in my life that God would have for me. And I feel like chapter 21 of John is screaming like, absolutely, absolutely you have purpose because the gospel doesn't end with just your forgiveness. It moves you from forgiveness into usefulness and beyond. So as as Peter's being brought back in here and as we're being brought back from our failures, Jesus doesn't just say, you're forgiven, now go sit on the bench while the people that are holier than you get to get in the game and do cool things for me. But you're too far gone, so you just get the bench seat, but you still get to wear the jersey, right? It's like, that's not Jesus. He's like slapping the jersey on and saying like, man, you were the farthest off of the far, like you were so far gone, but my sins have cast, or my, my, my work on the cross have cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. Here's the jersey, get in the game. You're not just a person sitting on the bench. I actually do have a plan and a purpose for your life. I actually do believe that there's usefulness to your life. So get in. Nothing causes me to like marvel more at the grace of God than the fact that Jesus doesn't just forgive people like you and me, that he actually finds ways to utilize us. Like, I'm constantly amazed by this, right? Like, he, he puts me to work. Like, he actually gives me things to do. He granted me a purpose. And then he actually uses that purpose to change the world through his gospel, like through his work and his story lived out through you and I, that the world will look differently as a result of it. Peter, the one who denies Jesus three times and makes all these mistakes, is the one that actually steps out to be sort of the launch pad for the church in the book of Acts. The launch pad for the gospel ends up being the guy that was the biggest failure. Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Second time, second time in Jesus' life that he's told Peter to follow him. Once at the beginning, Jesus comes back now and he says, follow me. This may be the the, the hardest question that I could ask you guys today, and I want you to ponder this question. Even as you leave here today, I want you to think about this. If you knew today that saying yes to Jesus meant that you were going to die for him, if you knew today that saying yes to Jesus meant that you wouldn't live to watch your, your daughter get married and walk down the aisle, if you knew 
that that was what would happen as a result of the step you were taking to follow after Jesus, would you still say yes to Jesus? I mean, that's basically what he's telling Peter. Like, all cards are on the table, face up. And now he knows, like, Peter knows what life in Jesus actually looks like. He, he knows the ups and the downs. He knows what works in the kingdom of God. Like, he, he knows that, that, that you can have faith to be able to walk on water and, and move mountains. He knows what doesn't work, that you don't take the kingdom by force, right? You don't use swords to cut off people's ears. Like, Peter knows these things, and now he knows what it's actually going to cost him. When Jesus says, follow me, in this moment, you have to understand that Peter gets it. Unlike any other time before in his life, Peter gets it. Jesus is asking for everything. So you, you could understand if in this one moment, Peter pulls back and gets kind of quiet and sits in this moment for a bit contemplating what it is that Jesus is saying. Like, Jesus, you actually are asking for all of me, my whole life, everything. You're, you're asking me to lose my life for you. It goes on in verse 20, and Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and, you know, John doesn't have a problem bragging about himself, and, uh, and it said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And I love this. Jesus says, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And he says it again. You follow me. Like, stop looking around you, Peter. Stop comparing your story to everybody else's story. Like, Peter, just be faithful to me. And we do this so often. We look around. We begin comparing our story to others. And Jesus is like, stop. Be faithful to what God has called you to. Be faithful. I was just talking with a friend of mine. We were out on a run the other day, and we were talking about like, how easy it is as believers in this day and age to begin this comparison game with other people. We get so lost in it. Well, like, I've done all this, Jesus. They haven't done that. Like, well, do I get more than them? Like, how, how come they got more than me? Like, how do I get as much as they have, Jesus? Like, we, we do this all the time. Instead of just realizing, like, God hasn't asked you to compare yourself to somebody else. He hasn't given you somebody else's life. What he's asked you to do is follow him. What he's asked you to do is be faithful to what he's entrusted you with to be a good steward of the life he's granted you. And here's how I'll wrap up this morning is that there's something that John wanted us to see about the lives of the, these two men at the book of John, right? You've got Doubting Thomas, you've got Peter, the denier. And what he's wanting us to see was, was not only the hearts of man, like how wicked they can be, right? But the heart of Jesus towards the doubters and the deniers. And so Jesus, in this really beautiful way, is sort of now replacing this horrible memory that Peter has around this charcoal fire where he denies Jesus 
with this new memory. And now Jesus makes him this meal and he eats with them. And then there's forgiveness and there's restoration for Peter. Like there's an end of the chapter. We get to move on. Like he's dealt with it. He's given it to the Lord. And one of the greatest lies that you and I can believe is that you've done something so great, so bad, that you've removed yourself from the outstretched arm of God. That you're outside of God's forgiveness. I would say that denying Jesus three times with Jesus standing right in front of you is probably one of the gnarliest things you could do. And yet Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, like, forgive him. So what is it that you've done? What is it that you've done that's caused you to think that you can't be forgiven? That you can't enter into relationship with Jesus? And you and I, like to be radically honest, we're here today in part because Peter would go on to preach the gospel and be a force to be reckoned with in the early church. Thousands would come to know Jesus as a result of Peter's preaching. Boom, the the church starts. This should bring us hope that God used a man like that in the ways that God did. And it should scream like grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration for you and I. There's nothing like the gospel, is there? Nothing. And so today, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, but we have this amazing opportunity to stand with some people that are being baptized this morning. Last week I talked about the fact that baptism is sort of like the ring, right? Like, if I stood at my wedding, you know, with my wife, and, um, and I said, I want to marry you, but I don't want to wear the ring, my wife would be a little bit bummed with that, right? But we put the ring on as a, as a way to send a message to everybody else that we're taking. And baptism for us is this amazing way that we get to proclaim to others the the step that we've taken. Like this is more than just my parents' faith. This is more than just something like a religion that I've taken on. It's more than just a box that I've checked. It's actually a way of life that I'm going to follow in. When Jesus says, follow me, I'm all in. I'm, I'm gonna pursue Jesus with my whole life. Romans 6, three and four says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. This morning, as, as these people take this bold step to be baptized, they aren't checking the box and meeting the demands of a religious system. They're saying before all of you, I want all of Jesus all the time in all of my life. Like I'm serving him with everything. And I'll stand before all of you and proclaim that. And so we're gonna, we're gonna sing a worship song here in a second. I'm gonna let some people go get changed that um, are gonna be baptized. If you're here this morning, and this might sound crazy, you've never been baptized, or maybe you were baptized you never really understood the significance or what it is you were doing, and today you're just like, God's pulling on my heart. Like, maybe there's some of you in this room that have literally never even surrendered your life to Jesus before, acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, master of your life, professed that you love him, you know him, you believe in him, and you want to follow him. 
what an amazing start this morning for you to make that proclamation to Jesus. Tell Jesus, like, I want to start this journey today. I believe that you lived a perfect life, that you died a brutal death on my behalf, and that you rose again, and that your spirit will reside within me, will be my empowerment. It's Jesus with us, by his spirit, in us, into the future. If you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus, do it. If you're here this morning and you want to be baptized, the waters are open. And in fact, we're going to set this thing up the next three following Sundays because I'm just like, if nobody comes, that's fine. But I think that there's people that God is tugging on your heart and asking you to take that step to make that proclamation. Maybe it's today or next week or the following two weeks. So anyhow, let me pray for us and then uh, we'll move on. Jesus, we thank you for this morning, God. I'm so grateful for this restorative work that you have done, are doing, and will do. For some of us, God, we've never walked in that restoration, made you Lord of our lives. We've had tons of lords and tons of gods and various religions, and we've tried lots of things to try to fill the holes, but we've never professed Jesus Christ as the one and only way to God. And so this morning, Jesus, I pray that there'd be some that would call upon your name. For some of us in this room, Jesus is taking us back this morning to these charcoal fire moments in our life where it's like there's stuff that was there and we're not rehashing it so that the guilt and shame can keep us down we're like going back to those moments and saying Jesus step in forgive me Lord restore me like you did Peter renew me give me new the newness of life and I pray your forgiveness be had with your church. And I pray as we leave here today, we'd even leave here with a burden off of our shoulders as we begin to cast our cares upon you, Jesus, and trust that we don't have to carry these things, that we walk in newness of life with our burden lightened because of the work that you did on the cross to actually remove that guilt and shame and that, 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 that junk that was built up over our lives, our sin that so easily binds us. I pray, Jesus, in your name, that it be cast as far as the east is from the west and that we be a church that would walk in this newness of life that you've offered us. And I pray your grace would abound. I pray your peace would abound in this church, in these people, through these people. And God, as Peter, the most far off of the far, was this pivotal person that you used in the church to proclaim the gospel and lead others to you. I pray that the same would go for those in this room, Lord, that think they're so far off they can never be used by God. And yet, when they find forgiveness in you, salvation in you, and they walk in this newness of life, that now all of a sudden they become the ones who proclaim the gospel and lead others to you as well. And so Jesus, bless the rest of our gathering this morning and be with those that are getting baptized. May this just be an amazing moment for our church and for the individual lives of the people being baptized and for those whose uh, lives are going to impact even after they leave these four walls this afternoon, Jesus. We thank you in your name.